You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Asherah. Asherah was the Canaanite goddess of fertility. When the pagan Canaanites needed something sexually, they would go and make an offering to Asherah in hopes that she would intervene on their behalf. The sign of Asherah worship was a phallic symbol known as an Asherah pole, a large wooden pillar that stood high above the surrounding landscape as a symbol of sexual and religious desire. God's people, of course, were not to worship the gods of the Canaanites. But sex, as we all know, is a powerful thing. And a goddess devoted to sexual fulfillment proved to be a very potent temptation. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God's people making the same bargain many of us have made. They will worship God as long as they can also worship Asherah. Why does it matter that you know this little nuance of Old Testament history? Well, it matters because you need to realize that talking about sex in church is not a new thing. In fact, God has been talking to his people about sex for thousands of years. Throughout human history, people have been tempted to make sex and sexuality an object of worship, an object of ultimate loyalty and desire. This is not a new problem. This is an old problem. So we're in the midst of a four-week sermon series here at Providence on sex. Last week, Todd began the series by preaching about God's design for sex. And I've been asked today to preach about cultural distortions of sex. So if Todd's sermon focused on sex in all of its created goodness and beauty, uh, my sermon focuses more on sex in its sinful brokenness. How does human sin and foolishness distort and corrupt God's design for sex? Now, I know that as we think and talk about these things, it stirs all kinds of memories, feelings, thoughts, emotions within us. I want to acknowledge that even as we sit here today, to acknowledge that to talk about something as deep and as personal and as foundational to our being as sex and sexuality likely stirs up a lot of things. I want to let you know that's okay. This is a community where we want it to be free and open to bring all of ourselves before the Lord and to consider what God has to say to all aspects of our personhood not just to the things we normally consider to be church things or religious things or spiritual things. Todd reminded us last week that sex is good. It's good because God created it. What I want us to think about this week 
is the fact that in our culture, sex is God. That's the basic distortion we are guilty of and that we need to think about together. In other words, instead of seeing and receiving sex as a good gift created by God and designed to be enjoyed under the Lordship of Christ, we have turned sex into an object of worship, an object of ultimate loyalty and devotion. If you think that language is maybe a bit too strong, consider this. Just last week, the world's largest porn site released its 2016 annual report. And that report showed that in the year 2016, people spent an aggregate total of 4.6 billion hours viewing porn on just that one website. The website had an average traffic of 64 million people per day. 64 million people each day bowing down at the altar of pornography, offering their minds, their souls, and their bodies to the dark and sinister forces of the porn industry. I don't think it's too strong to say that we have turned sex into a God, into an object of great worship and devotion. We need to regain our balance. We need to come to our senses. We need to consider what it means for us to look honestly at the ways our culture has distorted sexuality. Now, I'm guessing that you've heard sermons about sex before, and and let's be honest about where those sermons tend to fall short. In the wake of the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s, the church's basic approach has been to reiterate the Bible's rules for sexuality, to reiterate the biblical ethic for sex. And let's be clear, those rules are good. Those rules are true. Those rules are beautiful. They are given to us by a loving God who wants to protect us from harm and to set us up for true flourishing in all aspects of our humanity and our sexuality. But here's the problem. Rules don't capture the imagination, do they? Uh, Rules don't have a narrative arc like Sex in the City or Friday Night Lights. Rules don't make us hungry for a taste of the good life. If all we do is teach biblical rules for sexuality, we're missing out on the beauty and the power and the potency of the Bible's full teaching about sex and sexuality. So I want to do something different today. I want to set the topic of sex within the broader context of personhood. I don't want to preach to you today about sex. I want to preach to you today about what it means to be a person. 
Because sex, after all, is something persons do. And so for us to see why God's design for sex is so good and why our culture's distortions of sex are so damaging, we need to understand two rival visions of personhood. So here's what the sermon will consist of today. First, we're going to consider modern culture's view of the self and the implications of that for sex. And then we're going to look at the gospel's view of the self and the implications of that for sex. So you might say this, the sermon today is really about the self, about personhood, with sex as one aspect of that. So let's begin by exploring for a few minutes modern culture's understanding of the self. There are five key features of how we understand the self in the late modern world, and I want to survey them quickly for you. It's important that you understand these five things are a part of the air you breathe. Until I say them, you're not even going to be aware of them. They're so much a part of how you think about yourself and how you relate to the world that they don't even register consciously as things that we embrace. One philosopher has said it this way, worldviews are like windshields. We look through them without ever looking at them. And so as we begin today, let's take a step back and look at the windshield of modern Western culture. Five key features of the modern self. I'm calling these five features, by the way, from a book that Todd mentioned last week, a book by Jonathan Grant called Divine Sex. And he does a very thorough job of setting up these features of modern personhood. And so in a sense, I'm summarizing and condensing some work that he has done in his writing. Five features of the modern self. Here's the first one. Authenticity. In the modern world, the most important thing for you to do is to be true to yourself, to be authentic and real. And what does that mean for sexuality? How does that idea get applied to how we think about sexuality. Well, in our culture's understanding, authenticity means you must be true to your sexual urges and inclinations. Denial of your sexual desires is inauthentic. Repressing what you really want sexually is inauthentic. Christopher Yuan is a wonderful brother in Christ uh, who faces same-sex desires and inclinations. And he's chosen out of obedience to Jesus to live in chastity and celibacy, and he's quite vocal about that. And we brought him to Omaha a few years ago to speak about sexuality and to tell his story and to engage this narrative within our city. 
And you know what the knock against him in the local homosexual community was? The knock was, he's not authentically gay. Because after all, he's not acting on his desires and impulses, and therefore that makes him inauthentic. The first feature of the modern self is authenticity. You've got to be authentic. And I wonder if you can see how this focus on authenticity deforms us. What it essentially does is it, it turns us in on ourselves. We become, we become consumed with the question, am I being true to myself? Is this what I really want? And the more our sexuality becomes driven by authenticity, the more inward focused we become, the more self-absorbed we become, and the less able we are to fully give ourselves in relationships to another person. Authenticity, first feature of the modern vision of the self. Here's the second one, autonomy. In Western culture, when we talk about freedom, we mean something specific. We mean total and complete autonomy and self-determination. To be free means I am free to choose what I want unconstrained by any outside forces and unaffected by anyone else's opinions. And what does this mean for sexuality? Well, it means I get to choose how I express my sexuality without regard for anyone else. I am an entirely unconstrained actor in my sexual script. I am alone on the stage, and I can act out my sexuality in any way I choose, because after all, that's what it means to be free. The modern self is committed to autonomy. But I wonder if you can see how this focus on autonomy deforms us. It isolates us from community and it cuts us off from formative relationships. And so as a result, we can't actually build the kind of character that makes it possible to bond deeply with others. Autonomy, radical autonomous freedom actually impoverishes us. Because it pulls us out of the network of relationships in which we find our fullest humanity. Furthermore, it's just not true. None of us is an autonomous human agent. You are who you are today because of the influence of numerous people. Your parents, your teachers, your friends, your social context, the world around you. All of these things influence who you are and determine how you think about the choices that you make. There is no such thing as total autonomous freedom. Authenticity, autonomy. Here's the third characteristic of the modern vision of the self. Consumerism. It's hard to overestimate the influence of the consumer economy on our sense of self. 
We act in the world as consumers. It's so ingrained in our sense of self that we consume without even realizing that that's what we're doing. Just think with me for a moment about the phenomenon of online dating, which real common, and many of you are engaged in it. But what is online dating? It's a market-driven approach to relationships, right? So we have Match, and we have Tinder, and we have Christian Mingle, and we have a dozen other businesses, businesses, who are out to make a profit by promising to connect you with the right person. You are the consumer And what these companies are doing is marketing other human beings to you. We don't usually think of it that crassly, but step back and think about it. You swipe and you like and you choose based on your personal preferences and how these people and their profiles strike you. What better strategy could there be for pushing the practice of consumption as deeply into our lives and experiences as possible. And so it's no surprise that if this is how we've learned or are learning to do dating, then this consumerism also shapes how we think about sex, right? Sex in the modern world has become driven by the logic of consumption. Rarely... Does anyone speak of sex in our culture in the language of giving oneself to another person? Rather, we tend to speak of sex in terms of getting. Sex has become the selfish using of others for our own personal gratification. And if you doubt the pervasiveness of this, I would direct you to Dr. Lisa Wade's book, American Hookup, which just came out three months ago, as a massive treatment of this problem on college campuses. I wonder if you can see how consumerism deforms us. It causes us to treat people the way we treat things. It teaches us to use one another rather than to honor one another. And as a result, human beings become devalued. We become dehumanized. Authenticity, autonomy, consumerism. The fourth feature of the modern vision of the self is materialism. Materialism. For most of human history, we believe that a person is both body and soul, physical and spiritual, material and immaterial. But the modern world has dispensed with the idea of the soul. You are, in the modern way of thinking, really nothing more than your body. As our beloved worship leader Madonna put it, We are living in a material world. What does this mean for sex? It means that sex is seen as a purely physical activity. Sex is a natural bodily urge like eating or sleeping. It has no deeper connection 
to more core and essential parts of our being. And so we are taught to think of sexual union with another person not as a union of souls, but as merely physical. The modern self is a material self, a hyper-physical self. I wonder if you can see how this materialism deforms us. Over time, it causes us to lose our capacity for communion with another person. The catch-22 of this way of thinking is that when we think of sex as purely physical, we actually make sex less satisfying because we lose the joy and the wonder and the spirituality of it. And we damage our souls in the process. Here's the fifth and final feature of the modern version or vision of the self. Disenchantment. Disenchantment. It's not just that we think of ourselves as material or physical beings. It's that we imagine that we live in a disenchanted universe. We've lost any sense of transcendence, any sense of there being something beyond the physical. We feel imprisoned in a natural world of cause and effect. We've lost any sense of mystery, any sense of connection to a realm beyond ourselves. So what does this mean for sex? It means that sex, too, has become disenchanted. Even the beauty of romance and the mystery of romance, which used to accompany sexuality, is largely gone. One writer says that modern people basically use sex as a happiness technology. It's strictly utilitarian. The modern self is a disenchanted self. I wonder if you can see how this disenchantment deforms us. How it lowers our horizon for thinking about our sexuality. Because after all, if sex has no connection to anything beyond us, if there's no deeper, fuller meaning that we're participating in, then why would we bother with things like chastity or celibacy or faithfulness? Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Our lives lose a sense of meaning and purpose and dignity. So these are five features of the modern vision of human personhood. And I hope that by now you're relatively discouraged, disappointed, and lamenting, right? This is not a world that we want to live in. You'll notice that to this point in the sermon, we haven't even opened the Bible yet, right? Everything to this point has been preliminary because here's what I want you to see. How you think about sex depends on how you think about the self. If you buy into the modern cultural values of authenticity, autonomy, consumerism, materialism, and disenchantment, 
then the Bible's view of sexuality will probably seem odd to you. See, the Bible challenges our culture's view of sex because the Bible challenges our culture's view of self. And once you see that the issue is not sex, but personhood, it starts to change how you think about the whole conversation. So, having considered rather bleakly and starkly modern culture's view of personhood, let's look now at the Bible's view of personhood. Let's consider the gospel's vision of the self and the implications of that for our sexuality. Open your Bibles if you have them, finally, uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the passage that you heard read earlier. And as you're getting there, let me remind you of what the gospel is. The gospel is fundamentally a message of death and resurrection. Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead, and you need to die and be raised from the dead. The way the Bible sees the world, the way the Christian gospel looks at reality, the great problem in your life and mine is self. The thing that's wrong with you is you. The thing that's wrong with me is me. And in this regard, The Christian gospel shares some things in common with psychology and with therapy and with self-help, right? All of these disciplines acknowledge that something is awry within us, that the problems we have are not all out there. Many of them are in here. The difference, however, is that psychology and therapy and self-help all believe that with the right technique, the self can be rehabilitated. That with a few tweaks here and there, we can become a better version of ourselves. The Bible teaches, in contrast, that the only way for the self to be changed is for it to be put to death and then resurrected. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ promises to do in us and for us. Jesus promises that if we will come to him in trusting surrender, If we will come to him ready to give up and trust him, then he will take our old self into the grave with him and bring us back to life united with his very self. This is why Christians have always practiced baptism as the entry point into the Christian faith. Because baptism symbolizes and in a sense acts out this death and resurrection. In baptism, we celebrate the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we also celebrate the death and resurrection of the person being baptized. The way scripture says it is this, the old you has died and a new you has been brought to life. Listen to the language of Romans chapter 6. It says, All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
our old self was crucified with him. We have died with Christ, and we believe that we will also live with him. Romans 6 is celebrating the doctrine of union with Christ. The great truth that a Christian person is bound together with the Lord Jesus Christ in a spiritual union that radically changes the nature of the self. So if the modern self is defined by authenticity, autonomy, consumerism, materialism, and disenchantment, the Christian self the remade in Christ self is defined by union with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, you are in Christ, and that is a radically different understanding of the self. And that is what the Apostle Paul is working out in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He's writing to the church in Corinth about sex. That's the subject he's considering. But the whole discourse is rooted in a gospel understanding of the self. I want you to look with me at the language and the logic of 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 12. Before we begin reading, you're going to notice... That at the very beginning of this passage, Paul is confronting three of the mantras of Corinthian culture. Every culture has little phrases, little sayings that prop up that culture's vision of the self. In our culture, think of phrases like, keep your laws off my body. And how that's sort of a bumper sticker phrase for a particular view of selfhood and its connection to law. In Corinth, the live phrases were phrases like this. All things are lawful for me. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. The Corinthians were very into bodily pleasure and bodily fulfillment, and they had mantras and phrases that were sort of their characteristic ways of speaking about these things. These cultural mantras had worked themselves into the fabric of everyday life. And so the Apostle Paul is confronting these phrases. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, some of your translations will notice that verse begins with quotation marks. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you see how he's already leaning into the doctrine of union with Christ? Hey, the Lord and you are one. Body is for the Lord, the Lord for the body. Do you not know 
that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul is teaching a sexual ethic here. He's preaching clearly against sexual immorality. But what you'll notice is that that entire ethic is grounded in a gospel vision of the self. What Paul emphasizes over and over again is, hey, you are united with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing you do with your body that you don't bring Jesus into with you. In no area of your life are you an individual, autonomous self who is unconnected to the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, in every aspect of your life and of your being, you exist in vital union with Jesus. Therefore, glorify God with your body. This is a Christian sexual ethic rooted in a particular understanding of the self. In a Christian vision of what it means to be a person in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, this is the vision we have to have to begin to make sense of all the ethical questions surrounding our sexuality. Why does it matter what we think, feel, and do with regard to sex? Because we're united with Jesus. See, the reason our culture believes that sex is God is because our culture believes that self is God. We do not believe that. We cannot believe that because Jesus Christ is God. He is Lord over our bodies, over our minds, over our desires, over our relationships. He is Lord over our internet searches and over our text messages and over our entire existence. Therefore, We are to glorify him in our sexuality by rejecting the cultural distortions of sex that are all around us and by rejecting an understanding of the self that has no reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our culture's vision of the self deforms us, but the Bible's vision of the self 
transforms us. Our culture's vision of the self makes us selfish, but the Bible's vision of the self makes us selfless. Our culture's vision of the self turns us inward, but the Bible's vision of the self turns us outward. Our culture's vision of the self promises freedom, yet leads to slavery and bondage. But the Bible's vision of the self bonds us to Jesus Christ in a way that allows us to be truly free. Our culture's vision of the self encourages us to dishonor the body, but the Bible's vision of the self encourages us to honor the body. Our culture's vision of the self leads us to be less human, but the Bible's vision of the self invites us to be more human. What is the cultural distortion of sex? Well, it's really nothing less than a distortion of the self. As Christians, as those united with the Lord Jesus Christ, as those captivated and changed by the gospel, we have a whole different understanding of who we are, of what it means to be a human person. And that is what anchors and grounds an understanding of sexuality that can lead us into flourishing and life and freedom and transformation. Now, friends, before I close, let me make something very clear. The fact that we are united in vital relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ also means this. Jesus has taken up into himself all of our failures, all of our sins, all of our foolishness, all of the ways we have defaced and deformed the Bible's vision of sex and sexuality, Jesus has absorbed and brought into the grave with him all of that. And so what that means is we are freed from guilt, freed from shame, freed from embarrassment, freed from the weight of how we feel about those things, freed to bring all of that to the cross of Jesus Christ and embrace a new understanding of who we are. And here's my, my intuition, is that many of us understand that Jesus has forgiven our sin, but we've been living with a truncated understanding of what it means to be a person united with Jesus. And so perhaps you're feeling this morning the weight of this dialogue in 1 Corinthians 6 that what we do as Christians in our sexuality, we bring Jesus with us into. Friends, that should be a weighty thing for you. It's here in Scripture to help us wrestle with the depth and significance of our sexuality and of what it means to be united with Jesus. But it's also there not just to create weight and conviction, but to create freedom and joy. Because friends, nothing you have done, are doing, or will do can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Once you have been united with Jesus, you can't be ununited with him. And so he offers not only his forgiveness, but also his presence and his power to radically reshape and transform your entire existence, including every aspect and facet of your sexuality.
And so I want you to hear this morning the good news of the gospel, that the Lord Jesus Christ stands ready to receive, to forgive, and to empower with his very real presence every human being willing to acknowledge their need, including me, including you. So listen, in a few minutes we have the chance to continue this service of worship by doing two things, singing and expressing song to the Lord Jesus Christ and coming to receive the Lord's table. And so I want to offer two thoughts for you, two reflections as I prepare to close in prayer and as we prepare to move forward in our worship. First of all, if you are a born-again, baptized Christian here today, as you come to the table, would you come offering your whole self once again to the Lord Jesus Christ? Why do we practice this on a weekly basis? Because we are weekly renewing our covenantal relationship with the Lord Jesus. And so in thinking about how we have bought into the cultural vision of selfhood that's all around us, there's an invitation for us to come again and say, Jesus, I don't want to be that kind of a self. I don't want to buy into those lies about who I am. I want to offer the fullness of myself again to you. I want to live out of vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ. So here I am, Lord. And listen, you understand the symbolism of this is that this bread and wine is going to go into your body and literally unite with you, right? Like it's going to be taken into you. And what that is to be a reminder and a picture of is how vitally united you are with the Lord Jesus. So come, giving yourself again wholly and fully to the Lord Jesus. Come in repentance. Come in faith. Come in humility. Come in joy. And secondly, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I'm so honored to have the chance to talk about these things with you and hopefully to give you a little bit of a biblical picture of how the Bible thinks about personhood. And I would just urge you this morning to reflect on this question. Where did you get your vision of the self? What implicit assumptions have you made about personhood? And where does the Bible's teaching today begin to perhaps challenge some of those assumptions? If it'd be helpful to talk more about that, if you have questions about anything I've said, or if it'd just be helpful to dialogue a little bit about how the Bible understands human personhood and how you currently understand it, I'd really love to have that conversation afterward and I'll be as available as I can. Would you join me now in prayer as we bring ourselves before the Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.